the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme, the song of the Peat Bog Soldiers. The first time they ever performed it in the camp, the SS and the guards were actually singing along with them. We are the Peat Bog Soldiers, marching with our spades to the moor. The story behind one of Europe's best-known political songs and its origins in the early concentration camp system as a song of resistance against the Nazis. Also... They are subjected to quite brutal treatment at the hands of Cromwellian forces and they subsequently die as a result of the injuries that they sustain. How Irish nuns responded to the breaking up of their religious orders in the 16th and 17th centuries. And to begin this evening, Irish foreign policy in the 1960s. The 1960s was a tumultuous period for Ireland's Department of External Affairs, as it was called then, Foreign Affairs now. Ireland sought to join the European Economic Community, but for various reasons, membership remained out of reach. Relations with London were affected by local and international economic difficulties. There were new social and political forces in the North, recurring sectarian violence, and Dublin's fragile relations with Belfast destabilised. All this against the backdrop of the Cold War and nuclear anxiety. I'm joined now by Michael Kennedy. Michael is executive editor of the Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, volume 13, 1965 to 1969, published by the Royal Irish Academy, which covers this period in Irish foreign policy. Michael, you're very welcome back to the History Show. Um, The period covered in the latest volume is uh, sadly a living memory (laughs) for for a lot lot of us. Um, Time of great change in the world, moon landing, assassinations of Martin Luther King, uh, Robert Kennedy, outbreak of the Troubles. What was Ireland's place in the international arena at the time? And did Ireland's foreign policy change to keep up with these monumental world events? Ireland is kind of a, a, a two-stroke, if I can put it that way, place in the international arena that we're, we're still quite a respected figure in the UN. That's the, the signature issue of foreign policy. Frank Aiken is minister. And Ireland has been working its way up through the, the UN echelons since membership in 1955. By the late 60s, the UN is the area that Aiken wants foreign policy to revolve around. And, but the UN is changing and it's becoming more involved in, in kind of post-colonial matters, social matters. They don't in- interest Aiken so much. But the really uh, big force in Irish foreign policy is Europe, as you said in your introduction there. And Ireland wants membership of the EEC. And where we're a respected member of the UN, it's not so clear with regard to Europe that the six, as it then was, members of the EEC, do they really want Ireland to be a member? Because is Ireland economically uh, advanced enough to get in? Is Ireland really a developed country? And there are other issues linked to, say, the the Anglo-French antagonism over Charles de Gaulle not wishing uh, Britain to be a member of the EEC. And Ireland, of course, will join the EEC on Britain's coattails, although Ireland applies uh, independently because British-Irish trade is so critical to Ireland. If Britain joined the EEC and Ireland was left out, we'd be in a very difficult position. But if uh, Britain doesn't join the EEC, Ireland doesn't join the EEC. So what happens between Paris and London has a big influence on Irish foreign policy. They're the two main areas, but there's also, and this is indicative of the, the end of that this particular decade, Ireland is looking outwards. Jack Lynch goes on a visit to India and to Japan in 1968. We're talking about opening diplomatic missions in Tokyo, maybe even in Moscow, perhaps in Beijing, and the Department of External Affairs is looking outwards. So the 1960s are a period 
period where Ireland is looking out beyond the Western European Anglo-Irish framework that was part of foreign policy out to having a truly global reach for what was a very small Department of External Affairs. You mentioned Frank Aiken, Minister for External Affairs, who I think when he looked outwards, looked not much further than New York and the United Nations. So that famous cartoon, I think it was the Dublin Opinion cartoon of the plane flying past the Statue of Liberty and the Statue of Liberty going, how are you, Frank? That's right. Um, but uh, what was his reaction to that new outlook on the part of his uh, civil servants? Was he enthusiastic He's about He's not. It? No, it's, it's something we, we found. And there's, I should say there's a, a group of us involved in DIFP, my colleagues, uh, Kate O'Malley, John Gibney and then uh, Yunana Halpin, Bernadette Whelan, uh, Kevin O'Sullivan and Jennifer Redmond. There's a, there's a whole group of us working through these, these archives. And what we found when we were looking at Aiken in this period was he doesn't want to change. He doesn't want the department to move outwards. He doesn't want that global reach. He's just interested in New York, in the UN. And you can see a kind of muted antagonism amongst the senior officials in the department, like Hugh McCann, the, the Secretary General, we'd say now, trying to push the agenda, particularly Tokyo, and opening up trade with Japan is something Ireland's getting very interested in in, in the late 60s. But Aiken doesn't want to do this. Aiken also is interested only in relations between states, by and large. But this is a period where Ireland is getting interested in the individual in foreign policy. That means human rights issues, social issues, areas at the UN like birth control, the rights of women and uh, gender equality and that are coming to the fore in Irish foreign policy. And Aiken is a man of the 1930s and the 1920s. He's not particularly interested in this new form of foreign policy that is going to really be at the core of, of Ireland's international agenda in the 70s and, of course, since. And he also seemed to have been Minister for External Affairs for about a thousand years at that stage. Oh, yeah. I <laughs> uh, now, entry into the EEC, you talked about it already. We, we didn't get there until 1973, so I assume it'll all be coming up in volume 14. Um, but there was a lot of groundwork done and that helped when we came to the tipping point of membership in 1972-73. So uh, just tell me a little bit about the kind of preparation, the kind of contacts that were mm. being made. Well, in this period, foreign policy is being run by the Taoiseach. Sean Lamas and after him Jack Lynch are running foreign policy and their foreign policy is get into Europe and get in by 1970. Hopefully De Gaulle will change his mind and, and will be in. So the, the basis of foreign policy towards Europe is run from the Department of the Taoiseach with the Department of External Affairs and the Department of Finance, Agriculture and Industry and Commerce running the show from Dublin's point of view. There's a body brought into being called the Committee of Secretaries, the Secretaries General of the top departments, and their remit is to do the, the official level consideration of foreign policy. But where it gets very interesting is in Brussels at the Commission and how Irish diplomats get their point of view across to the, the EU Commission or the EC Commission and to the six members and of, of the EC. And it's our ambassador to the European Economic Community, Sean Morrissey, who is very, very adept at reading the lie of the land in Brussels and reporting back to Dublin saying, look, Brussels has issues in mind or the French are becoming a problem here. Look, we don't want to create a fuss, but we want Europe to know that we want to join. And European integration is key to our economic policy in the 60s and the 70s. And I think it's that link between Morrissey and his colleagues, uh, Brendan Dillon and others in Brussels and Dublin, 
that is key to getting the Irish point of view across. I mean, we, we tried to get into the EC again in 1967 and France is having none of it. De Gaulle is having none of it. And Lynch and his colleagues, particularly Ken Whitaker, are, the shuttle diplomacy hasn't been invented yet by Henry Kissinger, but that hmm. whole concept of shuttling round the capitals of the six, making the Irish case, trying to get across to them that, yes, we are a peripheral country, yes, we're predominantly agricultural, but we are fit for EEC entry. And that's at the core of, of that phase of foreign policy, showing that we're Europe fit, if you like, and that we, we can get in. And that links in back into UN policy where we get interested in development aid because only a developed country has the ready resources to embark on a development aid programme. So we're kind of playing our interest in the UN social agenda for a kind of cynical reason there to show, yes, we are a developed country. Yes, we can get into the European... I don't think the phrase soft power would have been recognised back then. Not at that stage. essentially what you're talking about. Not by Frank Aiken. What about the United Nations itself? Uh, Did the UN change its policies in response to the upheavals that were going on in response to the process of decolonisation that was going on in Africa Mm. in particular, for example? example, and in response to the to the Cold War? And if so, what part did Ireland play, if, if any part in that process? It's a very different period for Ireland at the UN. You think of the, the early 60s, that great phase where we're, we're sort of in the golden age of UN membership, Aiken, Cruz O'Brien, Fred Boland, Congo. By the mid-1960s, the UN has changed. It's become a more radical organisation in terms of the, the small states, the, the newly independent states of Africa and Southeast Asia who've taken over the balance of power in the General Assembly. And that's changed away from the kind of views that Aiken was espousing. And Ireland is no longer a radical in the UN. Ireland is uh, kind of a respected small player in the UN. And it's uh, involved in, in peacekeeping missions still in, in Cyprus, but there's nothing of the, the tumult of the Congo experiment of the, the early 60s. So late 60s UN policy revolves around a couple of, of episodes that Aiken tries to get off the ground to ensure the proper payment of peacekeeping, the balancing of the UN budget, and none of them really get traction amongst the great powers. The big success of late 60s UN policy is the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. And Ireland, through the Irish resolution of, I think, 1961 and through Aiken, is an instrumental player in getting this fundamental foundation of the non-proliferation framework to try and prevent the spread of nuclear weapons, getting that into play. And a sign of Ireland's role in that is that Aiken is invited uh, to be one of the first signatories and he signs the treaty in Moscow in, in 1968 along with the Soviet Union and the United States. So we're a small part player in that Cold War drama, what Conor Cruz O'Brien called the sacred drama of the UN. And uh, we still are playing an important role there, but it's balancing up against the points I made earlier about the Europeanization of foreign policy. So UN, Europe, that's the balance throughout the late 60s. Now, um, let's go back to development, to development aid. Many of us would remember as, as, as children the Biafran War, donating to Biafran children, the famine in Biafra. To what extent was Irish development aid, if I can paraphrase a, a slogan from World War One, all about little Catholic Biafra? Or to what extent was it about what we were talking about earlier, soft power? I, I think Biafra is a game changer in 
Irish foreign policy in development aid. It's a civil war in, in Nigeria between the, the secessionist province of Biafra and the, the rest of the country. There are many Irish missionaries in Biafra. Irish foreign policy towards that area is to try and protect the missionaries while at the same time support the government in, in Lagos. And there is a, quite a, a difficulty for for Aiken for the first time because public opinion in Ireland is on the side of the secessionist Biafrans, spurred on by greater interest in media in, in Ireland and also spurred on by a very adept use of the media by Holy Ghost Fathers returning to Ireland to say what's happening in the province. And so citizens in Ireland give aid to uh, Africa Concern, founded at that period, to bring aid to, to the Biafrans to alleviate the famine that breaks out in the province. But Aiken and uh, Irish diplomats in Nigeria have to try and steer an even keel and support the government side. So it's, it's a time where, for the first time, Aiken comes up against public opinion supporting Biafra and being against the foreign policy that the Irish state wanted to bring into being towards Nigeria itself. And what Aiken wanted to do was simply solve the war bring peace to Biafra by regional intervention, by UN intervention. He didn't want to come down on the side of the Biafrans. Ireland, like most states, didn't recognise Biafra. So it became a a foreign policy problem with a a domestic issue for Aiken, and he wasn't used to dealing with that. But through the foundation of Africa Concern uh, as uh, a mechanism to bring uh, aid to Biafra, I think it's spurred on the, the growth of organisations and NGOs that have become now a, a, a firm part of the Irish foreign policy environment. And they brought public opinion, brought the individual Irish person into the foreign policy making process for the first time. So Biafra is really important from that point of view. And uh, another flashpoint within the parameters of volume 13, 1965 to 1969, was the Middle East, was mm. the Six Day War in 1967. What was Ireland's position there? Well, Ireland's position there is to support the UN and to try and support uh, disengagement in the area. And Ireland has no diplomatic missions um, east of Vienna, really, at this stage. And our our nearest mission probably to the Middle East at that stage is the mission in in Lagos that I was talking about a few moments ago. So the information we get about the Six-Day War comes from Aiken in New York. And his involvement is working with Con Kremen, the Irish ambassador to the UN, to try and stop the conflagration in the Middle East expanding out further, you know, Cold War domino effect. Um, It links into other areas of foreign policy where Ireland is supporting Palestinian refugees through trying to give money to UNRWA, the UN uh, Works and Rehabilitation uh, Organisation in the area. So it's kind of the starting point of Ireland's modern interest in the Palestinian question that up to then Irish foreign policy had been quite pro-Israel and Ireland had been pro-Israel at the birth of the state in the 1940s. But now we see the beginnings of a of a change around and uh, an interest in trying to look after individuals in the area, the individual Palestinians, as well as an interest in trying to take the great power politics apart and trying to uh, prevent the war from spreading or prevent conflict from spreading in the area. Now, 1969... The troubles are nigh. Is there a sense of what if about this period? If the troubles hadn't happened, how might Irish foreign policy have developed? I really think so. Like we're, we're all wise in retrospect and we're looking back at that period as a sort of calm before the storm of the, the troubles breaking out. But to Frank Aiken, to Hugh McCann, the, Ireland's head diplomat, to 
Jack Malloy in London or Con Kremen in, in New York. This is a period where it looks like Ireland is going to broaden out its foreign policy horizons. And the trouble in Northern Ireland is really not on the Department of Foreign Affairs radar to any great extent. Uh, Lynch is over in India, uh, Hawaii, uh, Japan, when the beginnings of the the civil rights movement, the marches in October 1968, the baton charging in in, in Derry uh, by the RUC of the peaceful protests takes place. And I think that's indicative of where Ireland is looking. We're not looking to the north of Ireland. Uh, There haven't been diplomats sent up to get the lie of the land in the north since the, the, the 1950s. So Dublin is really out of touch with grassroots nationalist ideas and, and the developing uh, civil rights movement. All of policy towards Northern Ireland is predicated on improving cross-border cooperation with the Unionist government, Terence O'Neill uh, and then uh, Chichester Clark. And that hits the buffers by 1968 into 1969. And the Department of External Affairs is left wondering, where do we go? And Aiken isn't really sure how to deal with the early phase of the the troubles, if you like, the the pre-August 1969 phase, uh, because he is trying to follow an anti-partitionist strategy. But then the department briefs in that, well, no, this isn't about partition. This is about human rights for citizens of the UK given to all citizens of the UK. The people in Northern Ireland want the same rights that the people on mainland UK have. And this is a new one for Aiken. And then the the Irish missions in the US are being bombarded by letters and phone calls and telegrams from the Irish-American community saying, will you bring partition and the situation in Northern Ireland to the General Assembly, bring it to the Security Council? And Aiken doesn't want to do this. He said it won't, it won't uh, lead to anything uh, developing in, in, in a positive way. We don't bring matters like that to the, the Security Council. But of course, I would have to uh, in, in 1969, a year later. He's no longer minister at that stage. So I think Dublin is kind of caught on the back foot because they're looking outwards to another agenda, a global agenda for foreign policy, an agenda based on trade, based on promoting Irish culture, but not one uh, that's based on looking close to home and realising that there is a serious problem about to break out 100 miles up the road. Which means that essentially we have become a foreign policy issue for, for others. And how important was Irish America was Irish American opinion, not just, you know, Washington, Mm. not just the White House or the State Department, but Irish American opinion. And how was external affairs dealing with that? Yeah, Um, Irish American opinion is always hugely important to external affairs. Perhaps they overestimate it, uh, but it's important in, in two ways. One, it has to be placated, say, over Northern Ireland and over the Troubles and trying to get the Irish position across. But then on another level, it's very useful to have Irish-American opinion, particularly uh, on Capitol Hill, if you can get interested senators and congressmen with Irish backgrounds to support the Irish agenda in in the US. And in this period, it's not the kind of the partition agenda that they're looking at as the, the primary topic. It's actually uh, ensuring that Aer Lingus retains sole control of landing rights in Dublin Airport. That's a very technical issue that I'm sure most listeners won't have heard of. The big American airlines are doing their damnedest, Pan Am, TWA, to get into Dublin. They're only allowed land at Shannon at this period. It's another eons ago in, in aviation policy. And 
Ireland is trying to use Irish-American opinion to say, no, Aer Lingus is the Irish flag carrier and let it maintain its sole monopoly on landing in Dublin airport. This crisis ends up on Henry Kissinger's desk in the 1970s. The Nixon and Ford governments play hardball on it and it brings Irish-American relations to their lowest point since the Second World War. And it's something, we, you know, it's totally forgotten about now, this technical issue of over the politics of transatlantic aviation. Uh, it's the troubles that we think about. And that's another one of those what ifs, where might policy have gone uh, in, in, in a totally different world. That aviation agenda, rather than the Northern Ireland agenda, would have dominated Irish-American relations in the early 1970s. Let's finish with one giant leap for mankind, because obviously July 1969, you have Apollo 11 landing on the moon. Um, is there anything in the book about that sort there of is. momentous we, event? We, we made a point of that, that uh, John, Kate and I wanted to find some of the... The, the kind of the social history of the period. And there is a, it's up there today, a small plaque on, on part of the lander module that has messages from all the nations of the world. And there is a Cupola Focolas Guelga on the moon surface written by Eamon de Valera on a little micro dot plaque brought by Neil Armstrong. And it wishes... Um, it wishes the men who landed on the moon, you know, best wishes from Dublin and also talks and it's very pointed. It goes back to the UN agenda we were talking about. It says that it's good to see that uh, humanity is able to use the technology at its disposal for positive means and not to destroy itself, heading back towards that key area in Irish foreign policy of nuclear non-proliferation. So it's all politics in this, but there is that little bit of the moon that is forever Oscar So therefore, if uh, uh, any of our relatives on the moon come across it, they will become familiar with the Irish language. Oh, they will. They will indeed. On that note, we will finish. Michael, thank you very much indeed. It's always fascinating to delve into the department's archive and to hear about what was going on behind the diplomatic scenes during these periods of great change. Documents on Irish Foreign Policy, Volume 13, 1965 to 1969, is published by the Royal Irish Academy and is available in bookshops now and on their website, ria.ie. My guest is Executive Editor Michael Kennedy. Michael, again, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. After the break, we'll hear the story behind the song of the Pete Bog soldiers, written by political opponents of the Nazis in the 1930s. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. Now we're going to look at the story behind a song, a song originally written to protest the oppression of the Nazi regime that later became an anthem of resistance against totalitarianism. Our reporter, Connor Sweetman, has the story. The Song of the Peat Bog Soldiers is one of Europe's most well-known protest songs. It was a symbol of resistance during World War II. It was a symbol of defiance during the Spanish Civil War. And since the 60s, it has been recorded by dozens of musicians, including our very own Luke Kelly and the Dubliners. What makes this song unique is the fact that it was written in a Nazi concentration camp and it was first performed by the prisoners themselves in front of the SS guards. The music is simple yet powerful. The words are provocative yet understated. If you haven't heard the song before, here's Irish musician Ian Lynch reading the lyrics. Far and wide as the eye can wander, heat and bog are everywhere. Not a bird sings out to cheer us, 
oaks are standing gaunt and bare. Up and down the guards are marching, no one, no one can get through. Flight would mean a sure death facing, guns and barbed wire block our view. We are the peat bog soldiers, marching with our spades to the moor. We are the peat bog soldiers, marching with our spades to the moor. But for us there is no complaining, winter will in time be past. One day we shall rise rejoicing, homeland dear, you are mine at last. No more the peat bog soldiers will march with our spades to the moor. No more the peat bog soldiers will march with our spades to the moor. On the 30th of January 1933, Adolf Hitler was appointed as German Chancellor. One of Hitler's immediate challenges was what to do about the tens of thousands of people who were opposed to his new Nazi government. The solution came in the form of the Reichstag fire in March 1933, just four weeks after Hitler came to power. The Reichstag fire was an arson attack on the German parliament buildings. This provided the pretext for the mass arrest of Hitler's political opponents, whom he claimed were responsible for the fire. He convinced the German president to pass a law which gave the police the power to arrest anyone suspected of being a threat to the security of the German state. The first concentration camps were established in March 1933, not long after the fire. And by the end of that summer, over 26,000 people were being held without trial in these concentration camps. The first generation of inmates were political prisoners. As well as communists, there were Catholic priests, Jehovah's Witnesses, and even members of Hitler's own party, the NSDLP. The daily routine of the prisoners was very tough. They were subjected to forced marches and hard labour and regular humiliation and terror from the guards. On the long marches each day, the guards forced the communist prisoners to sing pro-Nazi songs, like the Nazi anthem. And it was under these conditions, in the early stages of the concentration camp system, that the song of the peat bog soldiers was written. So my name is Guido Fackler. I'm a German scientist in the field of cultural history. Guido is an expert in music that was written in concentration camps. It turns out that this was happening all the time in the camps. But what makes the Peat Bog Soldier song so different is that it was one of the earliest concentration camp songs and by far the most famous. It was written in the camp Bergermoor. These have been camps, uh, some camps where the prisoners had to work very, very hard. They had to work with, uh, with their hands and it was cold and wet. And so it was a camp to show the, the communist and socialist uh, prisoners that the Nazis are on to, to have the power and can destroy them, them physically. And so as an answer to this punishments of the SS, 
they said we should organize something which helps the prisoners to get new hope on the one hand and to show uh, the SS that we are human beings too that they don't beat so hard on us we wanted to show that we are human beings to the SS and to to help our colleagues which had been broken uh, because of this punishment action in Borgamore the prisoners organized an event which they called Circus Concentrazani or Concentration Camp Circus so they prepared uh, a barrack of the prisoners a little bit like a circus they invited the SS uh, so it was like a, a circus event with different numbers it gave a ballet of uh, a men's ballet uh, called the, the Moore Ballet and it got some scenes with uh, clowns and so on and the highlight was the premiere of the Peatbox Soldier song Ian Lynch is an Irish musician and host of the podcast Fire Draw Near in his podcast, he explores the origins of folk songs and how they spread around the world. Here, he explains how the song of the Peat Bog Soldiers was written. So it was a couple of men who were responsible for composing it. There was Johann Esser, who was a miner, Wolfgang Lankoff, who was an artist and maybe involved in theatre and stuff like that. And the two of them were responsible for writing the words to the song. And then a man called Rudy Gogwell, he was responsible for writing the melody so the whole story of how it came about was really fascinating i think the two men started to write the lyrics and managed to really strike a very fine balance with them in that it's very rousing and defiant lyrically speaking but also wasn't too on the nose with its criticism of the authorities or anything like that so that the first time they ever performed it in in the camp the ss and the guards were actually singing along with them because they saw, they were like, oh, we're peatbog soldiers as well, and we're also stuck out here and stuck in this daily grind. So I think it was really cleverly done. And the melody as well, Rudy Gogwell, apparently he gave himself an injury, so he would be put away in the hospital for a number of days. I think he, he got three days off work or four days off, and he used that time to actually compose the melody, which I think also really strikes a very fine balance in that it's more or less in a minor key but it also has those major bits so it starts off like na 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 and then it lifts like na 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 it has that lift there and then another kind of major sounding lift in the chorus as well you know there's the jump na na it's it, you know a very kind of strident and defiant sounding melody so i think all those aspects combined, it's just, it's a very, very well-written song. Understanding the origins of a song like Peat Bog Soldiers is one thing, but it's a whole other thing trying to understand how a song like this spreads around the world. Well, shortly after the premiere of the song, the song was banned inside the camps. So the prisoners used to sing it to each other quietly at night time to give each other strength. And that's how the song spread around the camps. And as the prisoners were released, 
they took the song with them. And this is where the song takes on a life of its own. You see, there are actually two versions of the song. The first version, the one that Rudy Gogol wrote, this was the song that the prisoners sang inside the camp. But as some of the prisoners were released, a new variant emerged. In 1935, the German-born musician Hans Bosch was living in London. He wanted to record the Pete Bog Soldier song, so he met with a former prisoner to learn the melody. Now, the person he met wasn't the best singer, and he couldn't remember exactly how the song went. So, the version that Hans Bosch recorded had a slightly different melody to the one that they sang in the camps. But it's this version of the song that ended up being recorded and spreading all around Europe. One of the most famous recordings of the Pete Bug Soldiers was made by American folk musician Pete Seeger. This recording brought the song to an international audience. I was only 14 years old when I, 15 years old, when I met Hans Eisler. He came to New York. And I was just one of many Americans who learnt this next song and have remembered it and sung it through the years. I'm afraid I don't know the original German words. I do sing the chorus, always in German. Wir sind immer so da. Although the song of the Peat Bog Soldiers was written nearly 90 years ago, the message, energy and strength of the song is still alive and well. Today, young musicians still interpret and record new versions of the song. In 2017, the Irish folk group Lancome released their own rousing version of the Pete Bog Soldiers. No more the Pete Bog Soldiers will march with their spades to the moor. Since 1945, the song of the Pete Bog Soldiers has been sung at memorial services around the world. It's been adopted by anti-fascist groups, trade unions and countless recording artists. And musicologists and historians alike consider Pete Bog Soldiers to be one of the most important German songs to have been written in the 20th century. Connor Sweetman was reporting there on the story behind the song of the Peace Bog Soldiers. After the break, I'll be talking to Brona McShane, who has researched how women in religious orders dealt with persecution during the Reformation period. We're going back now to the 1530s, a time when religious reforms were introduced to Ireland at the behest of one King Henry VIII. Members of Catholic religious orders, monks, nuns and canons, saw their communities broken up, upending their way of life entirely. Dr. Brona Ann McShane is a lecturer in the Department of History at the University of Limerick and the author of the recently published Irish Women in Religious Orders, 1530 to 1700, Suppression, Migration 
and reintegration. And the book looks at how women in religious orders responded to the persecution of Catholics during this period. And uh, Brona joins me now. You're very welcome indeed to the History Show, Brona. Thanks very much, Miles. It's great to be on the show. Now, you take those religious reforms as, as your starting point in the book, but this is a story that spans the, uh, most of two centuries, and that saw waves of hardline policies and extreme repression, with many nuns forced to flee the country and some losing their lives. When this programme of dissolution starts with Henry VIII, the shutting down of Roman Catholic monasteries, convents, enclosed religious orders, how systematic is it? And how far does royal power reach back in the 1530s? Yeah, so I suppose technically it's meant to reach across the island of Ireland, at least that's the plan from the, the point of view of the Tudor state administration. But in, the, in reality, um, the programme for the dissolution of the religious houses has a much more minimal impact in the sense that it is confined largely to what we would know as the Pale, the um, kind of greater Leinster area of the southeast of Ireland, where Tudor government administration was at its strongest and had a presence beyond the east and southeast of the country into what was known as Gaelic Ireland, the dissolution process and the attempts to eradicate religious life and close down monasteries and convents was far less effective. So really it's in these regions where we have much less influence of the Tudor state authorities that we have the greatest survival of medieval religious orders and foundations that really continue to survive right the way through the 16th century and into the 17th century. And that's evident by virtue of the fact that we have accounts from Tudor state governors in Ireland, you know, calling for these members of, of religious orders to cease observing this way of religious life and calls for the further suppression of these houses and communities of friars, monks and nuns. But as I say, really their, their effectiveness beyond the pale is much more limited and we have survival within Gaelic Ireland. Now, there were a number of religious in Ireland at the time, male religious, who decided to go with the flow, as it were, and to cooperate with the new dispensation. But nuns did not have that capacity for adaptation, did they? No, exactly. So that's what I was kind of interested in. How was the process of the dissolution of the monasteries a gendered phenomenon? Uh, male religious or men who were formerly members of religious orders that many of which would have been very closely linked to the state administration, they were able to adapt to new ways of, of life in terms of taking up appointments within the new state church. This was not an option available to women. Um, they were much more limited in terms of the options that they had and taking up appointments within, obviously, the new church, which was the Protestant state church, was not something that they were able to do. Now, I know it's difficult to reconstruct what happened to individual women in this period. There are obviously issues around survival of, of documents and material, lots been lost over the centuries. But what did you find out about the options that women faced when their lives as nuns came to an end and when they had to leave uh, religious, uh, religious orders? Well, I suppose the options are, are, were very limited. For evidence that does survive, we know that some of them did receive pensions. So like the male religious, um, their male counterparts, the women also received pensions from the state. We know that at least two of the members of the Priory of Lismullen in County Meath 
were receiving their pensions as late as 1562. So about 20 or so years after the dissolution of their convent, they were still in receipt of these pensions. But it was a difficult path that they navigated in the aftermath. We have um, an account from Mary Cusack, who was the last prioress of the Liz Mullen Foundation that I mentioned. And she actually is compelled to, to write to the Irish Privy Council requesting receipt of her pension. So, so obviously that gives us an indication that there was some difficulty that she faced in actually gaining access to the funds that she was entitled to as, as a former religious. So certainly this was not an easy road for them to, to navigate by any means. As women within early modern society, obviously they faced difficulties in terms of their position and status within society. And then I suppose the added difficulty of the fact that they were former religious as well and the state were really at odds with how to deal with this cohort of women in the aftermath of the closures. Was a return to their families an option? That was certainly an option for some. Again, uh, difficult for us to reconstruct in any detail. Again, with the case of Mary Cusack, she was actually the, the sister of a very well-established member of the Tudor government administration, Sir Thomas Cusack, who actually became Lord Chancellor of Ireland later on. But, you know, from what we can reconstruct about the level of support she received from her brother, really it was quite minimal. We don't get the sense that she was given any particular level of support by her brother, even though he was very well established within the Tudor government regime. And in fact, we have a letter that survives indicating that he, in fact, owed her money. He became in debt himself towards the end of his life and seems to have gone to his sister for support. So by no means was he necessarily the support structure for her. Mm. Now, despite the state's official banning of vocational living, religious vocations did continue in less formal ways. You look at something called tertiary living, which was a less formal yeah. version of living out a religious vacation. Just describe to me what that was. Yeah, so tertiary members of religious orders, this is something that I suppose spans back to the medieval period, but it's essentially a way of life whereby women and men would observe some of the customs and traditions associated with religious order, for example, Dominicans or Franciscans, but they wouldn't necessarily be members of the order or observe a religious rule or be enclosed like nuns who professed some vows. So I suppose this was a mechanism whereby women in Ireland could observe a mode of religious life, but one that was maybe more flexible in relation to the situation that they found themselves in in Ireland in the late 16th century, whereby enclosed formal life as a religious member of an order was, was not really an option in the aftermath of the official closures of the houses. Some tried to continue in secret. Tell me about the secret convent in Drogheda and what happened when it came to the attention of the authorities. Yeah, so these tertiary sisters, there was definitely a community of them in existence in Drogheda, as you mentioned, from roughly around the beginning of the 17th century, although it's it's very likely that it was even earlier than that. They were associated to the Franciscan order, and we had a Franciscan friary and oratory in establishment in Drogheda during the early part of the 17th century. And during, I suppose, this stage of Irish history, we have what's known as the imposition of mandate campaigns, whereby members of the state government and members of the official Church of Ireland, the Protestant Church, would undertake to enforce official 
recognition of the church and official observance of the Church of Ireland. And in doing so, they sought to repress these communities of religious, including the Franciscans and these Franciscan tertiary sisters. So we have an account from the early 17th century, 1605, where the Church of Ireland Archbishop raids this oratory and discovers this community of clandestine female tertiaries and forces them to disband. But we know from later accounts that Despite these efforts, uh, this community continues to operate in Drogheda throughout the early decades of the 17th century. And then when we have the return to Ireland of poor Clares, so they are the enclosed female version of the Irish Franciscans, the Irish poor Clares return in the 1620s. And really we have a multiplication of these convents of both enclosed nuns and also these communities of Franciscan tertiary sisters that spread across Ireland. Now, Cromwell obviously looms large during this period. You deal with the Cromwellian invasion of Ireland and the dramatic impact that that has on the Catholic Church in Ireland. And you write about two religious women in Mayo who apparently died at the hands of the Cromwellian forces. Can you tell me about them? Yeah, absolutely. As you mentioned, the two um, Dominican tertiary sisters Honoria Burke and Honoria Megan, they were affiliated to the Dominican Priory at Burrishul in County Mayo. And during this phase of the Cromwellian campaigns, their priory is set upon by Cromwellian soldiers who attack the priory and the members of the priory, both men and women, are forced to flee. They are subjected to quite brutal treatment at the hands of Cromwellian forces and they are effectively left for dead um, and they subsequently die as a result of the injuries that they sustain. Um, Now their cases are interesting because their case then subsequently is circulated in Europe in Catholic martyrologies, so accounts of those who died as a result of suffering for their faith. Catholic martyrs, accounts of these Catholic martyrs circulate throughout the mid-17th century and beyond. And both Honoria Megan and Honoria Burke feature in some of these accounts. And actually the case of Honoria Megan travels even beyond into Sicily, where there was a fresco depicting her that was created just after the Cromwellian campaigns in a Dominican monastery in Taramina. And the fresco is actually the the cover image of my book. It's one of the only images we have of an Irish woman in a religious order from this era. And it just gives us a sense of how their reputation spread well beyond the island of Ireland and how they were really esteemed within the Catholic Church as martyrs for their faith. Now, the book is centred around three major themes, suppression, migration, reintegration. So let's look at migration for a moment. You write about women who left Ireland and travelled to the continent to carry out their religious vocations. Tell me about the poor Clares who are based today, you've mentioned them already, at Nuns Island in in Galway who, who come back in the 1620s and they trace their lineage back to five Irish women who spent time on the continent. Yes, absolutely. So Nuns Island in Galway and the Irish Poor Clare Monastery remains there on the original site today um, and the community remain there. They trace their origins back to a community of Irish sisters who left Ireland in the 1620s and professed at the English Poor Clare Convent in Gravelines, which is located in modern day northern France. 
and this group of five Irish women subsequently returned to Ireland in 1629 and they established in Merchants Quay in Dublin the first convent, official convent for Irish women religious since the suppression of the monasteries of the 1530s. So nearly a hundred years later, we have the return from the continent of these professed Poor Clare sisters who established themselves in Dublin in Merchants Quay. The authorities, once they kind of get wind of this, they are pursued and told to disband. They subsequently retreat to rural Ireland, to um, County Westmeath, where they establish a foundation on the banks of Lochry. And then a group from this Lochry house, which is called Bethlehem, then travel to Galway and establish a foundation in Galway in the 1640s. And it's from this 1640s community in Galway that the Nuns Island community today trace a direct lineage to. And it's as a result, obviously, of their presence on the island that we get the name Nuns Island. Now, another woman you write about is Mary Butler from Kilkenny originally. She was the, the first abbess of the Irish Benedictine Abbey at Ypres, or Ypres as it's, uh, I suppose, more commonly known these days. Tell me about her. Yes, absolutely. So again, the importance of, I suppose, that continental connection for the establishment of Irish female foundations in Ireland in this period. Mary Butler, as you mentioned, she's a Kilkenny-born woman, but she's sent at quite a young age to be educated at the English Benedictine Convent in Ghent. And she subsequently takes on the role of abbess of an Irish foundation for Benedictine sisters that is established at Ypres in the 1680s. And then as part of that, she is asked by King James II to return to Ireland, to Dublin, to establish a community of Irish Benedictines in Dublin, which she duly does. And we have her passport, um, her passport for leaving to travel to Ireland survives. We have that still in the collections of the Benedictine community at Calmore Abbey. And she travels to Dublin, she establishes a foundation there and also a school. But this is the end of the 1680s, 1688 is when she arrives and the outbreak of the Williamite Wars puts an end to her efforts to establish this new Benedictine foundation in Dublin. She is forced to retreat to the continent where she remains for the rest of her life. But really, I suppose her reputation is significant in terms of the history of Irish women religious and I suppose her role in really securing the foundation at Ypres for the future and putting it on a stable footing for the future meant that it survived intact as an Irish foundation up until the beginning of the 20th century when the onset of the First World War in Europe meant that the Irish sisters at Ypres returned to Ireland. The sisters now remain at Kylemore Abbey in County Galway where they have lived since the beginning of the 1920s. And they actually just recently celebrated 100 years in Kymore in 2020. There'll be a special event launching this book at the Poor Clare Monastery on Nuns Island in Galway on Thursday the 8th of December at 7pm. The book once again is called Irish Women in Religious Orders 1530-1700 to Suppression, Migration and Reintegration. The author is my guest Dr Brona Ann McShane. Brona, thanks uh, indeed for joining us on The History Show. Thanks very much Miles, thank you. That's all we've time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items as well as podcasts are available on our website rte.ie forward slash history show. My thanks tonight to Mark Dwyer and Ruth Kennington on sound and our researcher Liz Gillis. 
The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, from me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.